know you stand a lot, but uh, this is the Word of God. If the President were here, you'd stand for Him. So I pray that um, as we read this living and powerful Word of God that you would pay reverence and do the same. If you need to stay seated, that's understandable. Um, whatever you need to do. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, and we'll read through verse 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works actually exceed the first works. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself, that's important, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless... They repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches both mind and heart, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You can be seated. Today we're going to continue our journey through these churches in the book of Revelation. And Jesus is showing us a church right here that it seems to have it together up to a point. It has all of the characteristics that the other churches have been condemned for. This church has it. And yet we get to a point to where this church is tolerating evil. They're doing everything else right, but they're tolerating evil. The word tolerate means this. It means to leave alone or to just put up with or to permit to happen. Remember, this is important. The title of the sermon this morning is Christian Tolerance. What is Christian Tolerance? Should Christians be tolerant? And so the word tolerate means to leave alone. Should Christians just leave things alone? Should Christians just put up with anything and everything? And should Christians just permit whatever to happen? Should Christians tolerate? This church was a very loving church. It was full of faith. It was full of service. It was full of perseverance. But they seem to have at least missed the mark on Jesus' teaching. Now, you remember that Jesus taught us to love our enemies, right? 
And so He didn't call us to persecute our enemies or to demean our enemies or to uh, try to conquer our enemies. He taught us to love our enemies. He also taught us to pray for those who persecute us. He didn't say to slap them back or to, um, uh, to do to them what they did to you. He said, pray for them. So love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He taught us to forgive those who offend us. He teaches us to be kind, compassionate, tender-hearted. But we are never told to tolerate evil. There is nothing loving and kind and compassionate about tolerating evil. But we get into a place, and, we, and, and many of our people today are so soft-hearted. And don't get me wrong, we could have more softer, softer hearts. I know my wife will tell you I could be a lot uh, softer-hearted person than what I am. A lot of times you don't get the right combination of, of head and heart. Uh, what you're really looking for is soft heart but a hard head. Most of the time if you have a hard head, you've got a hard heart. Or if you've got a soft heart, you have a soft head. And the two don't go together. You really want a hard head that is stern and knows what you believe and where to stand and when to stand, but a soft heart, a heart that is kind, a heart that is forgiving, a heart that is compassionate. And that combination is not one that comes naturally to any of us. But you need to understand there is nothing loving, there is nothing kind, there is nothing compassionate about tolerating evil. Kevin DeYoung is a, a, a pastor that I love to listen to. This is a quote from him. He said, Love does not equal unconditional affirmation. Love does not equal unconditional affirmation. See, many in our culture today and even our churches believe that being loving means that I just accept you for who you are. That I just, um, that I just tolerate you. That I should just, even if I disagree with something, it's not my business. I ought to just mind my business and do what, what I know is right and what I'm taught is right and keep that to myself and don't worry about anybody else. Let them do their thing and you do yours. And that's the way that we love people. Well, let me say this again. Love does not equal unconditional affirmation. We have to understand that no matter how loving and soft-hearted you are, Everyone has a list of standards to which they think the world should conform, right? Even the worst of sinners out there, even an, an, an adulterer, and I ain't calling them the worst of sinners, I'm just using that as an example. Even an adulterer out there has a list of standards that he still thinks is wrong and that the world should conform to. No matter how soft-hearted you are toward any evil, there is still a list of standards in your mind. You remember um, there are um, many artists out there. Um, Lady Gaga is one of them. And um, I, I, if I remember right, back in February, she had a concert in Las Vegas. And she stopped in the middle of the concert to condemn our Vice President, Mike Pence. She stopped to condemn him because he allows his wife to work at a school that bans LGBTQ people. And so they ban them. And so because they do not accept that and they believe that that is sinful lifestyles and they do not just accept that, then she condemned him. And, what, and the statement she made was that, I am a Christian. 
this great theologian of our time, Lady Gaga. She said, I am a Christian. And she said, I am more of a Christian than our vice president is because Jesus taught us to love everybody and accept everybody, no matter what. Well, her theology is a little off firsthand. But she, even she, with that mindset, I promise you, has a list of standards that she believes the world should conform to. She Even she would have something that if... If you did this in your life, she may accept everything else, but there's a list somewhere that she would look at and she would go, that is not acceptable. That should not be tolerated. And so the question is this, if Lady Gaga has a list, and you have a list, and I have a list, and Jack has a list, and Lori has a list, if, if all these people have a list of standards that they think the world should conform to, and if you're not on this list, then... You don't tolerate it. If that is the case, then whose list is right? Who's right? Lady Gaga right? Jack right? Am I right? And so whose list is right? And what we learn is that God's list is the only list that's right. This is where we as Christians must get our standard. Now let me tell you this, because I'm going to preach on something this morning here in a few minutes that is a hard doctrine to accept in churches. A very hard doctrine. So I'm fixing to preach on something that's very tough that would likely not be your way. And so I want you to understand something. We are not here this morning to say, God, we want to be okay with you. We want to line up and, and we, we, we want you to more importantly line up with us. There are things that I could teach you from the Bible about God this morning that you would look at and go, not my God, hashtag. Not my God. Not my Jesus. Let me tell you something. God is who He is whether you agree with it or not. God's standard is God's standard whether you line up with it or not. And you're not here this morning to make God line up with your standard. You are here this morning to learn God's standard and say, God, I surrender to you. My ways are not your ways. But you are good. And I trust you. And that's the reason why our sole authority in everything we do must be from this right here. This is the standard. Even if I don't like it all. And let me tell you something. I don't like it all. That's the truth. There are doctrines about God that I look at and go, man, I'm not okay with that. I don't really... I, I don't, my mind and my heart can't, can't just settle in with this. But I have to remind myself, Kevin, God is not asking you to be okay with Him. God is telling you, this is who I am, this is my standard, and you need to trust that I am good. That I'm good. And when we can get ourselves lined up with that, we're in a good place. Um, Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 actually tells us the reason why none of us and none of our standards can be right. Let me show you. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately, what? Sick. Who can understand it? Listen, your, your heart may not be as sick as Adolf Hitler's. Your heart may not be as sick as, as a guy that uh, committed rape or murder in prison. 
Your heart may not necessarily have went to that level yet, but one thing you need to know for sure, the heart is deceitful above all things. And it is desperately sick. And no one can understand it. And so God's standard must be the standard that we all learn and conform to. Listen, we cannot give affirmation to every belief and every behavior. Let me say that again. We cannot, as loving as we are called to be, it is not loving to give affirmation to every belief and every behavior. I'm going to quote my pastor friend that I love again, Kevin DeYoung. This is what he said. He said, Surely a parent can understand that we cannot affirm every behavior that our child does. You are not a good parent if you give unconditional, unqualified affirmation to every behavior you see in your child. You see them playing in the middle of a very busy street and you say, who am I to judge? Right? The child says, mommy, daddy, I'm fixing to take a bath with a toaster. Well, to each his own. I want you to learn to think for yourself as you grow up. I mean, you, you think about this. Common sense tells us that we cannot affirm and support every belief and every behavior of every person. We cannot do this. We have to have a standard. There is nothing loving about that kind of tolerance. As Christians, we must love what God loves and we must hate what God hates. That is what we're called to. So today, we're going to look at the, the tolerant church of Thyatira. Now, just a little history on Thyatira. This is a small town. Uh, we've already went through Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum. If you'll remember, Ephesus was the marketplace of Asia. It was a huge city that everybody came to to do their trading, to buy their goods. And people went to Ephesus to set up shop and actually sell their goods. Uh, Smyrna was the crown of Asia the beautiful city that sat on top of the mountain and it was the crown of Asia Minor. Or Pergamum, it was the capital of Asia Minor. It was the political center. Every ruling that came down for Asia Minor took place in Pergamum. Well, today we get into a little city. It's called Thyatira. And it is the business center of Asia Minor. It's kind of like the, the industrial park of Asia Minor. And so it's not the marketplace, it's not the crown, it's not the capital where the political things take place, but it's the city where the business takes place. It's the city where the factories are set up, where all of, all of the, um, the trades are made, and where all of the, um, the, the things are built, whatever it is that they, they sell. And so today, all that's left in this old city are the ruins of this business sector. That's the reason why they know so much about what this city represented. The ruins are still there. We still have a lot of writings and old of, of this city and what it was. And so this, this city, the ruins that are there, you can look around and see the business sector is still what survives. This town was known for its trade guilds. Now you would better understand that today as labor unions. This, uh, this place had, uh, its economy was built. It, it was, the foundation was laid on labor unions. Literally, you could not get a job in Thyatira if you were not a member of these trade guilds. 
You had to be a part of these little um, social networks of trades in order to even be able to work in this place. Thyatira is one of the few places in the world that had most of all the minerals needed to have any kind of a specialized trade. The water was so rich in minerals that no place else in the world could make a, a textile or a fabric or, or a weaving of any kind. No, no other place in the world could make one so red or so purple. Uh, some of the darker reds they called purple. And so nobody could make one so bold as this place in Thyatira. You might remember in Acts chapter 16 verse 14 that Lydia was one of the first converts in Philippi whenever Paul was preaching the gospel there. And he says that one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. And she was a seller of purple goods. And so she made her purple goods in Thyatira and then she would come to the different marketplaces in Asia and she would sell her goods. And so Thyatira was known for its purple dyes and its red dyes that were made from the minerals there. There were textile guilds, there were dye guilds, there were bronze smiths guilds, there were silversmiths guilds, there, were, there was much bronze and, and silver in this place, there were leather maker guilds, there were pottery maker guilds, there were so many different guilds in this business sector of Thyatira and these were very deep social networks. Listen, if you were a part of this guild and you got um, in trouble in your debt, the guild would help you pay. If you were, um, let's say that, that, that you were a part of this guild and you were building a house and you got in some trouble, the guild would help you build the house. Let's say that you got sick in this town and you were a part of this guild and you needed help. The guild would, would help you in your sickness and help you pay your bills. And so ultimately these were very deep social networks in this town and it was all built on this family network of guilds. But here's the problem. If you were not part of the guild, you were an outcast. You had to be part of the guild. For those of you that, that know a little about the labor unions here in the States, you'll know that if the labor union joins together and they're doing something together and you decide to go another way, you are called a what? A scab. And you are not treated very nicely. You will become the enemy. And so you see an even healthier dose of that, or an unhealthier dose if you will, in Thyatira with these trade guilds. Every so often the guilds would hold a great feast for all the members of the guild, and they would hold these feasts in the temple of Apollo. Now listen, Apollo was known as the Son of God. He was both the Son God... And he was also the son of Zeus, who was the king of all gods. And so he was known as the son of God. And so whenever we look back at Revelation chapter 2 again, and Jesus introduces himself, you're going to get a better understanding of why he introduced himself this way. But he was known as the son of God. And in these festivals in the temple to Apollo, they would hold these great feasts. And he was the patron god of these guilds. That's why they held their feast there. But they would worship Apollo by sacrificing animals to him to ask his blessing and protection over the guild. And most of these feasts would also lead to sexual immorality because if you know anything about Greek history, Greek Roman history, then you will know that many of these gods had temple prostitutes. 
and it was part of the act of worship in, in these places to these gods. And so what's a Christian in Thyatira supposed to do? If you don't work and you're not part of the guilds, what happens? You're outcast, you become homeless, you can't get work. And so what's a Christian supposed to do? If you say, I'm not going to the feast, the guild has no choice but to excommunicate you because maybe Apollo would be displeased and curse the guild. And so if you're not a part of this guild and you don't worship their God, their patron God with them, then guess what? You're out. You're out. Now listen, in Pergamum and Smyrna, if you remember our, our teaching from it, Christians suffered the possibility of losing their life and that's probably more severe, no doubt. But in Thyatira, you and your family would be homeless. Now, this is probably not true for everybody, but I'm just going to be honest with you. Sometimes I think people would rather die than actually have to endure this kind of suffering. Sometimes I think people would rather die than not be able to feed their kids. Sometimes I think people would rather die than not be able to support their families, than to be homeless with their family. And so this is a tough thing, and every Christian has to make a choice. So with that context, let's go back to Romans chapter 2, and let's read this again in context. Verse 18, Jesus writes to the church in Thyatira. If you're making an outline, that's the first thing I would put down, is that the words of the one who writes to this church is Jesus. So Jesus writes to this church in Thyatira, and this is what He says. These are the words of who? The Son of God. This is the only church that He introduces Himself this way. Why do you think that is? Because He wants them to understand what? I am the Son of God. Apollo is not the God you have to appease. Apollo is not the God that you worship. Apollo is no God. I am the Son of God. And so he wants them to understand that he is the one true and the only God. And then he says, who has eyes like a flame of fire. In other words, he wants them to understand that I see my sight is penetrating and I see all things. If you were to look a little bit further down, and we'll come back to 18, but in verse 20, 23... He says, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. He wants them to understand that, as I've told you before, you may fool me. You may fool everybody else in this place. You may come in this church and pretend to be a Christian and walk out of this church and live however you want to live. But there is one person that you will never fool. And that is the Son of God who has eyes like the flame of fire and He sees everything. He searches the mind. He searches the heart. And then next He says that His feet, in verse 18, His feet are like burnished bronze. So these are His words. This means that He has enemy-crushing feet. Literally, and if you were to go over into Revelation 19, I'm not going to turn there, but it, Jesus gives a description of Himself there again. And His feet are used to tread down the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. And so His feet are there to crush. Uh, he said that God is putting all of His enemies under the feet of Jesus Christ. And so He wants them to understand, I'm the Son of God. 
He wants them to understand, I see everything. I know everything about you. And then He wants them to understand that I have the power and will crush every enemy under my feet. And so you have two choices. You can either be one of those enemies under my feet being crushed, or you can be one of those that stand and rule with me and crush those enemies with me, as you'll see when we get to the end of this Revelations chapter 2. So those are the words that, that we have here. The words of Jesus Christ, and that's who He wants you to see Himself as. Next, we have the commendation. Jesus commends them. Look at verse 19. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your later works exceed the first works. This church has a lot going for it. This church, Jesus knows their works, and He's pleased with it. He knows their love. He's pleased with the love that they have. He knows their faith. He commends them for it. He knows the service that they have toward Christ and toward each other. And He commends them for that. And He knows that in all of this, they are patiently enduring in spite of the difficulties that they face. And not only that, but do you remember in the first letter to the church, the church of Ephesus, do you remember what their problem was? They had... They had lost and left their first love, right? And the answer to them was that now you are to go back and do the first works. Well, here's what Jesus says about this church. Your latter works do what? As good as we looked at Ephesus and we thought, man, this church had it going on. The truth of the matter is, Jesus looks at this church and He says, listen, you got that part right even to the point that you exceed in these works past your first works. And so Ephesus needed to go back and do the first works of love, but Thyatira has exceeded those first works. They're solid in their love. But maybe the problem is this. Maybe they love people more than they actually loved Christ. And that's our problem a lot of times. We love people and we love things more than we love Jesus. And as a result of that, we tolerate more than we should tolerate our children. As our children get older and become teenagers, and um, you know, I was talking to a young lady. I was talking to a young lady about her kids. They were teenage kids, and uh, she was cutting up and laughing with me, and she said, you know, I was a teenager, and I did all that too, and... Um, and she was talking about them being, being down in places that they really ain't got no business being and doing things that they ain't got no business doing. And, and, and she was really making light of it. And, and, and her point was that, uh, you know, we all did it and everybody does it. And listen, they're just living out their early days and they're just doing what, what they, they love to do and they party. Well, here's the problem. You love your kids more than you love Jesus. Because you look at that and you make excuses for it and you tolerate it. But what you don't understand is this. God don't care if you're a teenager or you're 80. God is just as serious about sin when you're a teenager as He is when you're 80. And God will send a teenager... Listen, God don't send sin to hell. God sends sinners to hell. It's important for you to understand that because we look at it and we think, well, we can kind of separate the two. No, no, you can't. 
God is calling us out of those things. And a Christian walking in true faith is pulling himself out of those things. And, and he is walking with Christ and he's walking with God. So parents, I'm telling you, be, be careful. I know your kids are teenagers and I get it. I was there. I was that guy. But let me tell you something. My faith was not genuine. I was not following the Lord Jesus Christ. I was following this world and everything in it. And if God had not had mercy on me and let me die in that, I can promise you today, some preacher would have had to lie at my funeral and preach me into heaven. Because I would not have been there. And so I'm telling you this morning that I know you love your kids. I know you love your spouses. I know you love people. And that's good that you're soft-hearted. That's good. But it is not loving to tolerate sin. We have to be able to beg and plead with our children, whether they're teenagers or not. I talked to another mother a few other times about, about her teenage child and the things that he, that he was doing and the, the struggles that they were having. And I heard the weeping in this mother's voice at the path that her child was going. And let me tell you something. I would much rather as a pastor hear you weep about your children's sin than to hear you make light of it and act like, ah, oh, God understands. He gets it. God was once a teenager. No. No. Not like that. And so we have to understand that there is nothing loving about tolerating sin whatsoever. And so here we have this church that loved people and they loved things more than they loved Christ. So we get into the, to, to the condemnation. Go to verse 20 with me. This is the condemnation. You had the commendation, now the condemnation. But I have this against you. In other words, you've got a lot going for you. You're a good church, actually. But I've got something that I have against you. And it is that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now listen, God has a problem with the teaching, absolutely. But that's not what He starts out with saying, I have this against you. What he starts out saying I have against you is that you tolerate it. You just pass over it. You just permit it to be. You just act like it's not a big deal. And God has an issue with tolerating Christians. He has an issue with Christians that have this kind of tolerance. And so he says here, my thing that I have against you, the first condemnation, you tolerate this woman doing this. Ephesus, if you remember, they tested people like this. And they found them to be false. It says in Revelations 1, I can't remember the verse, but it said, you tested those who called themselves apostles and you found them to be false. Ephesus was able to look at the Scriptures and go, no, this is not right. And they didn't tolerate it. And they were commended for it. This church had things Ephesus didn't have, but they tolerated things they should never have tolerated. And she rose up a Jezebel. And now keep this in mind. We don't believe, and many scholars don't believe, this woman's name was actually Jezebel. Um, any, anybody in here ever named their kid or grandkid or, or ever named them Adolf Hitler? Nobody? Nobody does that? 
Well, in the same manner right here, Jezebel was a name that everybody knew who this woman was. She was a very evil woman that came in to the kings of Israel in the Old Testament and she, she actually um, seduced the king to start worshiping her idols and her gods and then she led them, the kingdom of Israel, into sexual immorality and worshiping the Baals and, and the uh, fertility goddesses. And if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 16 through 25, somewhere around in there, you can read all about it. You can see who this Jezebel was. But let me tell you, what ended up happening to her is this. They threw her out of a window, horses trampled her, and then the dogs came and ate everything except her hands and her head. They ate it all. When they came down to bury Jezebel, they found that there wasn't nothing left of her because Elijah had prophesied the dogs are going to eat you. And they did. And the only thing they didn't touch was her nasty hands and her nasty mind. So here we have a woman that rose up just like this Jezebel here. And she is leading this church and teaching that you can live in sexual immorality. Go to the guilds. Go to the feasts. Listen, God understands you have to provide for your family. It's just like that same mindset. God understands that, that we're teenagers and God understands that let me tell you something. God understands that He has called you to obedience, that He has saved you from your sin, and He's given you His Holy Spirit to guide you. And if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's what God understands. And so God is not giving you an out here that just because you can't feed your family, go to the guilds, be a part of the feast. No. Listen, brothers and sisters, we must not mind a little suffering if we're going to be Christians. That's the truth of it. She calls herself a prophetess. You know, they probably just wanted to accept her, right? They were so soft-hearted and so full of love and compassion and kindness, they probably they just wanted to accept it. But that's not love. That kind of tolerance is not love. She called herself a prophetess. They could have tested this just like Ephesus did. And so here's the doctrine that I want to get into this morning. Please don't stone me until I have time to get the entire teaching out, okay? Don't throw rocks at me. Don't stone me until I get through the entire doctrine. First and foremost, she is a woman that has took a position of authority and teaching in the church. Now I'm not saying that women don't have a very important place in the church. But I'm going to show you many scriptures that teach us that this was not the created purpose and the place that God called, called you to. And so they could have, they knew from the early teachings of the apostles that this was not acceptable, but they tolerated it. And because they tolerated it, it just went from bad to worse. I want to help you understand what this teaching and why this is. Everything God created, He did so with a purpose. Y'all stay with me, please, because you need to understand this. Everything God created, He did so with a purpose. And the purpose was that it would be an image of His glory or His many perfections. That's what His glory is. His glory is a summary of all of His perfections. And so when God created the Grand Canyon and the mountains and the heavens, He meant for the world to look at all of these things and see His majesty. 
He meant for you to stand in front of places like the Grand Canyon and the mountains and go, what an amazing God. This God is powerful. This God is, is almighty. And so it is living out its created purpose. And so in order to understand this, look at Psalm chapter 19 verse 1. In Psalm 19 verse 1, David is speaking and he says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim His handiwork. So what is the purpose of the heavens and the skies? To proclaim something, right? When you look at the heavens and the sky, it's meant to proclaim, man, God is a great creator. God is awesome. And that was the whole purpose for His creation. In Romans chapter 1, verse 19 through 20, He says that for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, God is invisible, a spirit, so He creates physical so that we can see and worship. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since what? So the whole purpose behind creation is so that you can look at it and see God and see who God is. Stay with me. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through, um, through 33. Let's go through this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So he's comparing the two, right? It is his body and is himself its Savior. Keep going, verse 24. I may have to turn this to, to keep up. Give me just a minute. He, he'll keep up with me once I get there. Verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. So in other words, Paul is taking us back to creation right here, right? The woman came from the rib of the man. No one hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. In verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he quotes an Old Testament quote of God, right? And now look what he says next in verse 32. This mystery is profound. What mystery? The mystery of marriage. The mystery of God saying, I'm going to create woman out of man's body. He shall come from her, and then the two shall become one flesh, and the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here's what he's doing. He wants you to understand that when God created man and He created woman, He brought woman out of man because He was painting a picture. He wanted the world to look at marriage, the family, and He wanted them to see a picture of a spiritual reality. What spiritual reality is that? 
It is the spiritual reality that Jesus Christ, our head, was going to come and lovingly be our, our sacrifice, our head of our life, and He was going to take us in to Himself, and we were going to be His body. And this picture is being painted out to the world so that when they look at your marriage, they are supposed to see a picture of Jesus Christ, the head, and the bride, the church. And they're supposed to see the loving headship. That's why he says, wives, submit to this loving headship. And then husbands, love your wives the way that Christ loves the church. And so when everything in the family is in perfect order and working the way that it should be, the husband is being a loving servant head. And the wife is gladly submitting to that. I'm sorry, I almost spit on you. And the woman is gladly submitting to that loving servant headship. And this is a beautiful picture as the world looks at it and they see the glory of God. It was God's created purpose. It was why He created you a man and He created you a woman. And then as the man, the head, and the woman make children together, it paints a picture of the church that with Jesus Christ and His bride, the church, when they are one together, they spiritually make more children. And the church, the mother, raises up these children and she teaches and she trains under the headship of Jesus Christ. And so everything is meant to be a picture of God's glory. Now what happened? Well, you know the story. We sinned and we fell short of God's created purpose. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of what? We decided we do not want to live for God's created purpose. I want to live for my created purpose. And so here's what happened. Sin corrupted that beautiful loving headship that the husband was supposed to represent and it corrupted that beautiful glad submission to that that the wife was supposed to represent. And here's what happened. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. You need to see this because you're going to understand why things are the way they are today. To the woman, this is after the fall. I'm not going to cover every detail. I don't have time. I've got to stick on my rabbit trail here. All right? To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I'm not going to cover that this morning. You want to know more about that? Come see me. But look at this next. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall what? Now a lot of people interpret this, that this was God punishing the woman, saying, now I'm going to make him your ruler. And your desire shall be for him. That's not what it's saying. It's saying this is now the consequence of your sin. You were not the punishment. This is what's going to happen because of you not wanting to follow the glory of God. Not wanting to live your created purpose. The man was supposed to be a loving servant head. But now, instead of being a loving servant head, he's going to use his strength and everything that he is to dominate you. To control. He's sinner. He's not supposed to. It's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But the man is going to always be trying to rule over the woman and put her down. And so you've got some churches that will teach this and go, well, the man is created to rule over the woman. No. Wrong. The man is created to be a loving servant head 
that gives His life and gives Himself for His bride the same way that Christ did for the church. Right? That's what He's supposed to be. But instead of being that kind of head, instead of being that kind of authority figure, if you will, He now takes on this ruling mentality that I'm a dominating, domineering man. And instead of the woman being happy in her glad submission to this loving headship, go back to the first part of that, Tim. Instead of that, your desire shall be what? For your husband. In other words, the woman is never going to be, in her sin, she is never going to be satisfied with this role that God has created her in. We should absolutely have women's rights. Women and men are equal. The Bible says in the image of God, He created them. Women and men are equal on every category. The problem is this. Equal does not mean same. God created you equal, but He created you, the man, for this purpose and to live out this image of His glory. And He created you, the woman, for this purpose to live out this image of His glory. But in our sin, we said, No, I don't want to be a loving servant head to my wife. I just want her to do what I say. How many, marriage, how many marriages have I counseled that that was the problem? She don't respect me. And the problem is this. He's still got this mentality that she's supposed to submit to me. She's supposed to do what I say. You know, you're supposed to be a loving servant head that gives everything for her. How easy and happy would it be for her to submit to that? And so sin comes in the picture and it messes everything up. So it's not that men are greater than women. It's that God created the man to be the image of this headship, this loving servant headship. And the whole problem with all of creation is that we got that twisted. Where was Adam in the garden? If he was supposed to be the loving servant head, then why was the serpent talking to Eve? The problem was Adam stepped back and he let the woman have authority, have control. Not that she don't have authority and she can't control, she's his equal. But he should have been leading this thing and protecting her and giving his life for her. And instead he stepped back and he just listened. And he listened to his wife instead of him loving, serving, and giving himself for her. And so now, Jesus is teaching us that as Christians, he's calling us back to this loving servant headship as men. And this glad submission to that loving servant headship of women. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. He says, This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure... I think I gave you the wrong one, Tim. Maybe it's supposed to be 1 Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy. I'm sure I did. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to this right here. 
He says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, he's not saying that women can't speak in the church. He is addressing the situation of the authority. He's addressing the situation of the loving servant head, living out the purpose that God created the man for. And listen, if the man does it right, it's a happy thing for the woman. It's a good thing for the woman. The problem is, because of our sin, man, we don't usually get it right. We usually get it wrong. Verse 13 says this, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so here's the point that he's trying to make. He's trying to help them understand that God's created purpose and what they were designed to be is what the church is calling us back to. It's calling us back to the man being this loving servant head and the woman being... The, the picture of the way the church gladly submits to Christ's loving headship. And when the world looks at you, that's what they should see in a Christian's life. As a husband, guys listen, you are going to stand in front of God, husbands, and you are going to give an account for your ministry as a husband. You better not think for one second that this is just something you took on and that that this has nothing to do with God. This is a ministry that He gave you. And you are going to be held accountable for this ministry and He is going to want to know how did you as a husband display to the world the way that Christ was the husband of the church? Did you give yourself for? Was she your greatest love? Was she the one that you sacrificed everything for? Did you lovingly lead her with mercy and grace? Did you take her alongside of you and let her rule with you? And then women, the same thing. If you are a wife, and this is another reason, have you ever wondered why the father gives the bride away in a wedding tradition? Because the woman always has an authority head over her. And it begins with her father... And then in a perfect world, the father is always there because he's been a good father and he does what he's supposed to do and he walks her down the aisle and the pastor says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And what do they say? What does the father say? I do. Or sometimes her mother and I. And ultimately it is the exchanging of that headship. And now the woman is still, instead of gladly submitting and painting that picture to her father, now she transfers over to being married and she gladly submits and she, she's happy to submit now to her husband to paint that same picture. But because of our sin, the woman looks at it and goes, I ain't submitting to nobody. So, look at Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. Titus chapter 2, 3 through 5. Older women likewise are, not to, are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. So again, the only thing the church is teaching, the church ain't trying to keep you women barefoot and pregnant. 
That's not the goal here. The goal is that you live your life... Go back and read Proverbs 31 and look at what all that woman did that the Bible calls a virtuous woman. She was a businesswoman. And so the Bible is not trying to keep women barefoot and pregnant. The Bible is trying to teach them how to live a life in such a way that when the world looks at you, they see the happy, glad submission of the bride of Christ, of the way the church is supposed to be to Jesus Christ Himself as He lives out this loving servant headship. Everything that God created was created to be a picture of His glory in some way. And now you have two choices. You can either continue to say, God, I'm going to rebel against you and I don't want to live for your purpose. Or you can look and see that He is for you, not against you, and He loves you and He's for your good. And you can gladly submit to that and say, I surrender. Your will be done in my life. And husbands, men, we have to do the same thing. One last scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Look at what he says. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, a bishop, an elder of the church, he desires a noble task. But look what he must be. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, first and foremost. And what's next? The husband of one wife. Have you ever known a woman to be the husband of one wife? No, because women can't be husbands. I don't care if uh, the state allows you to get married or not. You're still not going to be a husband in its definition. And so what we have to understand is that God has set the church up to paint this picture. And when the men are walking in it the way that they're supposed to be walking into it, they're, the, they're, they're leading, they're teaching, they're, they're being the heads of the church. And the women are also still teaching other women, teaching children, raising up and living out their part in the church life as well, but not in the same aspect as the man. And so go back to Revelations chapter 2 with me again, and you'll see this again in verse, um, verse 20. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, she calls herself that and she is teaching and she is seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so they tolerated something that should never have been in the church to begin with. And we're seeing the same things taking place in our churches today. We've been guilty of this, not necessarily that exact thing. But listen, the culture is always changing which things it will be tolerant of and which things it will be intolerant of, right? Some of y'all that are older and have lived a few more years than the rest of us, you'll remember that there are things today in our culture that are accepted that used to, it wasn't accepted. This was shameful and today it's celebrated. And I'm not just talking about homosexuality. I'm talking about all different types of sexual immorality, all different types of drunkenness. and, and, and So there, there is so much that the culture is always changing in what it's tolerant of. <clears throat> Listen, the culture never wants to be offensive to anybody and it doesn't want to suffer any persecution for standing with God. And so it's always changing what it is tolerant of. The church once stood with Christ in His ways, but now, out of love here, they don't want anyone to feel judged in any way. We look at everybody and we say, who am I to judge? 
Right? Hashtag, don't judge me. Look it up. Go, go home searching on Facebook and see what all comes up. Hashtag, don't judge me. That's the motto for today. Don't judge me. We don't want to judge anybody. We want anybody to feel judged. But there is a loving way to not tolerate sin. And God says that judgment must begin in the church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. I'll go through the rest of it very quickly. For it is time for judgment to begin. And where must it begin? It has to begin here. It is time for it and it has to begin here. And it must be with Christ's standard of goodness that we judge rightly and lead each other lovingly into the truth of God's ways for the believer. Let's finish this up. Revelation chapter 2 verse 21 through 23. We see the warning. I love this right here. Verse 21 he says this, I gave her time to repent. Don't you love the mercy of God? Now we don't know how much time that's going to be, right? But God says, I gave her time. Man, she was doing some terrible things in this church, right? And God said, I gave her time. I kept loving her. I kept telling her. I kept, I kept convicting. I kept reaching out. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent. Listen, God is patient even with the worst of sinners. But as Genesis 6 verse 3 says, His Spirit will not strive with man always. All sins will be forgiven except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you've ever heard that verse, here's the, the summary of what it means. It means that the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts you of your sin. And any sin that you hang on to so dearly that the Holy Spirit keeps telling you, keeps telling you, keeps telling you, and you keep refusing, and you keep refusing, and you keep refusing, there comes a point that it becomes blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and you say, no, I will not listen to you. I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to trust, trust you. And let me tell you, that is the sin that will not be forgiven. That is the sin that there is no coming back from. First John talks about seeing a brother sinning a sin that leads unto death. He said, I tell you, you probably shouldn't even pray for that person. And so all throughout the Bible we see examples that God is patient and God is kind, but God is not going to strive with us always. And so we get this beautiful warning. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. And look what he says next in verse 23. I or verse 22. I will throw her onto a sickbed. This is a play on words. He says if she wants to commit adultery and sexual immorality and she wants a bed, I'm going to give her a bed. I'm going to throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. In other words, the ones that trusted her and followed her because they didn't want to suffer persecution from the guilds, he says, I'll throw them into great tribulation. They didn't want persecution. I'm going to show them what persecution looks like unless they repent of her works. I love that. He still, even in this letter, there's still time. Church, listen to me. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you're tolerating, there is still time right now. But we don't know when that time runs out. So repent. Verse 23, And I will strike her children dead. This is talking about the fruit of her teachings, the fruit of her loin, the ones that she has grown up and taught. I'm going to strike them dead. And here's the reason why. Here's the why. That was the warning. This is the why. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. 
and that I will give to each one of you according to your works. This is going to be an example so that you know that God sees everything, He knows everything, and He's going to repay for whether or not you live for His glory or whether or not you live for your own. He will give to each one according to their works. Verse 24, we get into the encouragement. The encouragement and the reward. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I say to you, I do not lay on you any other burden. I love that. You know, God is really not asking that much of you. Just surrender. Just surrender. And if you'll surrender and you'll follow Him and you trust Him by faith and you walk in love and you walk in service for Him and toward one another and you persevere in your faith, He said, listen, just quit tolerating this evil. Quit tolerating it. Quit just passing over it and giving it a permit. If you'll quit that, He says, listen, I'm going to make you a conqueror. I'm going to let you rule beside of me. The encouragement. I'm going to lay no other burden on you. You're not going to, I'm not asking you, I'm not binding you up with all kind of laws and rules. I'm not laying no other burden on you. Quit tolerating evil. Quit tolerating evil. And I'm going to make you a conqueror. And then you can go through and read the rest of it yourself. I'm not going to finish it up. But you go through and you read the rewards. The main thing is this. He says, you're going to rule with me. He said, you can either be under my feet of the enemies that I'm going to crush. And if your pride is that thick, it can go there. Or I'll let you rule with me. And it'll be, you'll be stomping enemies with me. And there's a lot of people that say, well, you know, I ain't really crazy about stomping enemies with Jesus. You know why? Because this world don't offend you. You don't love Jesus enough that when you look at the things of this world that it offends you. And because it don't offend you, you don't have any enemies. And so you don't get any satisfaction with looking at Jesus and going, we're going to trample this stuff together. But when you begin to love Jesus the way that you need to love Jesus, this promise is going to be very, very satisfying to you. We're going to rule together and we're going to trample the enemies of God under our feet. <laughs> and this is going to be an awesome eternity. Amen. I pray this morning that you'll understand. If y'all want to come on. In closing, I don't care what your culture tolerates. The culture is not your standard. Parents, listen to me. Grandparents, listen to me. I don't care what this culture tolerates. This culture is not your standard. Christ is our standard. And He has a standard that we must attain to. And if we're going to be Christians, we love what God loves and we hate what God hates. And if you're not there today, then I'm telling you there's a warning. I'm giving you time to repent. I'm giving you time to repent. To throw up your rebellious arms and surrender and say, God, I'm going to hate what you hate. I'm going to love what you love. I'm going to be loving. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be compassionate. But I'm not going to tolerate evil. I'm going to stand with you where evil needs to be stood against. And if you need to do that in your own life, I pray you do it before the judgment comes because He sees it and the judgment is coming.